This is God's word. The Psalm of Asaph. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. The Bible says in itself that the grass withers and the flower fades, and the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your mercy toward us for another week, that you have been near to us and blessed us and comforted us in our weakness and our sadness. And we pray that you would uh, fill us with your spirit this morning. That you would strengthen us, encourage us to see things more and more the way that you see them. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's something special and powerful about a courtroom drama. There are certain scenes from uh, movies or books that are etched in our minds. I think about To Kill a Mockingbird. You remember the last, one of the last scenes after the trial. Jean Louise, stand up. Your father's passing. I think the last 30 minutes of A Few Good Men are some of the best drama that I've ever seen. I want the truth. I won't try to do the... uh, You can't handle the truth. In recent years, the serial podcast was so popular because people wondered if Adnan Syed was really guilty or innocent. Courtroom dramas are so powerful because they, they portray the place where people's lives, their futures, where justice hangs in the balance. And what's interesting is that the courtroom scene and the courtroom imagery is something that we see actually throughout the Bible. It's seen in the Old Testament. It's seen in the New Testament. The idea or the scene of a courtroom is actually central to our view of the gospel. And the message of justification by grace through faith that we can be accepted by God, declared not guilty because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Psalm 82 is a courtroom scene. It's different from most of the other psalms. Most psalms are prayers, they're praises to God, they're confessions. This psalm is uh, God speaking. It's almost... An indictment. It feels more like the the prophets when they would speak for God and they would uh, challenge God's unfaithful people. Psalm 82 reminds us of something very powerful and very important. That God's heart goes out to the hurting, to the needy, to the weak, and the helpless. God is concerned for justice and love, the care of outcasts and the oppressed. And he's concerned for this, not just from his throne, not just from on high, but God is concerned for this to happen and take place 
in and through us, through his people, to bring about justice and mercy and grace. So I want to welcome you into God's courtroom this morning. I want to invite you to hear and respond, not with the canned and automatic answers that we're so accustomed to giving, but I want you to think and to allow God's word to stretch your heart and your mind and to be reminded of the fact that God's heart is toward the needy. First point is this, all rise, stay seated. Uh, God's counsel. God has taken his place in the divine counsel. It says it there in verse 1. And this is a picture of God taking his place, taking his stand as the judge of all the earth. It's this very powerful picture. God is in charge. He reigns forever. He's in control. And this is one of the places in the Bible that highlights part of God's character. One of the aspects of God's rule and reign in particular. And so we put together what other things say from God's word, that God is loving and kind and merciful. We also read that he's just and that he's a jealous God. He's gracious and compassionate, but he's splendid in holiness. And here we have the picture of God, the great king of heaven and earth, standing up, stepping into his courtroom. And in our culture, we can can imagine it. Maybe we've been there before. The lawyers are chatting with each other. There's conversation in the, in the gallery. Then the judge enters and the bailiff says, all rise. And the conversations immediately stop and everyone stands on their feet. That is the picture here at the beginning of Psalm 82. God has come into the divine courtroom. He has something to say. And we should quiet down and listen to what God has to say to us. We see God's counsel unfold in the second part of verse 1. It says, in the midst of the gods, he holds justice or judgment. What does this mean? Is it a tip of the hat to polytheistic religion, to the ancient belief by so many cultures that there was a pantheon of gods? I don't think that's what this is talking about. Bible scholars are mixed about what this actually means what the term lowercase gods is referring to here in Psalm 82 1. Some believe that it's a reference to the Jewish leaders and the princes of Israel. Some believe that it's a reference to angels and demons and the the angelic world. Some believe that it's a reference to those that follow all these different gods, gods that don't amount to anything. And it's almost a mockery. God stands up in the midst of them And he shows through his divine justice and power that he alone is the living and true God. Whatever the exact meaning is, the message is clear and simple. Whatever people, whatever philosophies, whatever worldviews, whatever little g-gods that we turn to to bring us satisfaction and answers and hope and joy... Even those idols that are near and dear to our hearts, our own pleasure, our ease, our agendas, these gods, these plans, these idols, those worldviews, they cannot hold up under the weight of this world. 
They can't carry our hopes and dreams. They can't carry the guilt of our sins or the disappointments that we face or the great mission to which God has called us. Remember what Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your paths straight. That's the heart of the beginning of Psalm 82. God is king. God is in control. And if we lean or trust on anyone or anything besides Him, we're going to be disappointed. That's the call. That's God standing in judgment. What do we see What else do we see as Psalm 82 unfolds? The second thing I want us to see is in verse 2. It's the question or the indictment. Sometimes a well-placed question is worth more than hours of lecture or tons of instruction. You've been there before, right? Where someone asks you one question and it just hits you right between the eyes. Are you ready to begin? Do you think it's time to get help? Is there something you need to tell me? A good question can cut through the clutter. And this question comes to us from God. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? We don't know exactly where that question is aimed at the people of Israel. Yes, it's possible for God's people to become sidelined and twisted and to revert to unfair and unjust practices in their life. Is that indictment pointed toward the ungodly pagan leaders? Surely they needed to know and remember that God was watching and that he saw everything. In either case, it's an indictment against the injustices prompted in culture in general and even through the people of God. And the question is still powerful and the question still hits home. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Well, the answer comes from God. Verses 3 and 4, God gives us a clear call. That's the third point of this sermon. The answer, the call. God calls all people, especially His people, to remember that He has a heart for the needy. The lost and forgotten people of this world are supposed to be one of the targets of our love and care and concern. And God's Word here is part of the remedy of this searching question. And it's on two fronts. First of all, it's in in general In creation, give justice, maintain the rights of the afflicted. Simply because people are made in the image of God. Move toward the weak and the needy. Rescue and deliver those in need. This is part of what's hardwired in us as human beings. To move toward people who need help. We've seen it so beautifully in the past few weeks. We've seen people giving donations and rescuing people in their boats and cleaning out houses and doing all sorts of things just in general because folks need help. That's one thing that Psalm 82 is reminding us of. Just because we're human beings, we should move toward those in need. But there's another layer here. For those who know and love God, who've been redeemed by Jesus Christ, 
There's especially a call for us from Psalm 82 to remember what's precious to God and to reevaluate our priorities, to reassess what's precious and important to us, to hear Him ask the hard questions and then not think, and we all think this sometimes, I wonder who He's talking to. One of my favorite memories of living in Cleveland, Mississippi, I lived there for seven years, I preached one Sunday night at, at our church there, and uh, afterwards my friend Foster, an elderly man, he came up to me and he said, man, you really gave it to him tonight. <laughs> yeah, we laughed, and you know, the funny part is that, you know, we just think that, man, there's so many people that need to hear that message. And, uh, you know, he was joking, but one of the beautiful things about Christianity is That since we're loved radically by God through Jesus Christ, we can come to Him, we have the freedom to come to Him and say, Lord, help me, shape me, mold me into Your image. Make me the woman or the man that You've meant for me to be. So what does that look like? One of the things that this passage says is to give justice to the weak and the fatherless. James said it this way. Pure and undefiled religion is helping widows and orphans in their, in their need. I don't claim to have the answers. I'm not sure what to do or how to do it. But maybe we can begin or continue by asking these questions. How can I help bring justice to the weak and the fatherless? How can I stand up for people in my community and help maintain the rights of the afflicted? How can I speak for folks who don't have a voice or who have lost their voice? Again, I don't know what to do or how to do it. But the answers probably don't exist uh, in the mindset that I so often have. And I'm ashamed to say that I think this way. Ways like this. I wonder what he did to end up that way. Does this guy really need help? Or is he just trying to scam everybody? I'm sure someone else will step in to help this person. Again, I don't know the answers. But at least in my life, when I start down that road of cynical judgment, I'm fairly certain I'm heading in the wrong direction. Maintain, give justice and maintain the right of the afflicted. Verse 4 also says to rescue the weak and needy and to deliver them from the hand of the wicked. It seems that our calling is not simply to maintain and give justice. These words from verse 4 are active words. It's like a search and rescue mission. Seek and deliver the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hands of the wicked. How are we thinking about moving toward praying for lost, forgotten, and hurting people in this world and in our community? Why? Verse 5 beautifully says it. Why us? Why is this part of God's plan and program for His people? Verse 5 gives us the answer. 
They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk in darkness. And this isn't some paternalistic way for us to say that we have all the answers. It's simply a statement that reminds us of the fact that there are so many people in need. There are so many people who need help. It's part of the reason that we partner with organizations like Hope Ministries and the Purple Cow and the Christian Outreach Center and the Gardier Community Christian School. It's why we started distributing and making care bags for the homeless. I know it's a small thing, but it's a step in that direction. We have the privilege through our actions and our thoughts and our prayers and our donations and our time to move toward hurting people. And here's the thing. If you think about application, it's really easy for us to forget God's heart in maybe two ways. One... Uh, there's one pitfall that people can, can fall into, and it's called the social gospel. People become so committed to meeting and reaching the physical needs of those who need help, the homeless, the poor, the rejected, the outcast, that they forget the ultimate solution, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. They get wrapped up in helping people physically and emotionally, but they forget the fact that they need Jesus Christ and His grace, and His mercy, and His love. And then, another potential pendulum swing reaction against that social gospel is folks to avoid reaching out altogether. Shy away from mercy ministry for caring for the physical and temporal needs of people. And they say things like this, they just really need the gospel. Which is so true. But they also might need help getting food for their kids this month or learning how to dress for a job interview or how to balance their checkbook and they need the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel gives us the freedom to move toward people helping their physical needs while unashamedly pointing them to the good shepherd Jesus Christ. The last thing I want us to see this morning is a plea. It's found in verse 8. Arise, O God, judge the earth. You shall inherit the nations. I love the way the Psalm 82 ends. The voice changes. It's no longer God speaking, but we hear Asaph's voice. You remember Asaph? He was the writer of Psalm 73. Just a few weeks ago, we read about him struggling with God's purpose and plan. He was the same guy who wondered if his whole Christian life and profession was in vain until he remembered the greatness of God through the worship of God. That he had no one in heaven or on earth who was more significant and substantial than God himself. I think in this last verse of Psalm 82, Asaph is coming around. It's almost as if verse 8 is a plea and a confession. Where he says and he prays, Oh God, there is injustice in the world. There are things that happen that break our hearts. Sometimes, Lord, I'm a player in that. Through my complacency and cynicism and neglect and sin, I can get caught up in my own world and forget the poor and the hurting and the fatherless and the, and the widow. Arise, oh God. And judge the earth, for you shall inherit the nations. It's yours anyway, Lord. 
This is a prayer of frustration and hope. It's a prayer of struggle and faith. It's the same thing that we pray when we pray the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We live between two worlds. Have you heard of the already and the not yet? We already have forgiveness and acceptance and joy and hope and peace through God and Jesus Christ. But we also have struggles and trials and injustice and our own inconsistencies and heartbreak and drama and complicated, sticky situations in our lives. Not yet do we have full and perfect peace. Not yet has the battle with sin and death been completed where Jesus himself will wipe away every tear from our eyes and there will be no more death, no more sadness, no more pain. Psalm 82 reminds us of this tension. We live in between the already and the not yet. It's the same tension that we pray, we feel when we pray, Lord have mercy, come quickly, Lord Jesus. That's the plea. That God would work in us and around us and do it for His glory. So, just a few points of application, a few ways to take Things to take away from Psalm 82. How might we respond? First, we can look at the little g gods in our lives. At the idols that we lean on and rely on and bring them to Jesus. Do work to root them out and cast them out of our lives. God's rule and reign in the world and in our lives is a loving invitation for us to repent of our idols, turn to Him for help and strength, even if there is a huge cost, because following Jesus Christ is worth it. Second, we can honestly bring our thoughts or lack of thoughts about the needy and the outcast, the fatherless and the destitute to Jesus Christ. I don't believe the point of Psalm 82, and, and I know the point of this sermon, is not to just make us feel guilty. This is an invitation from God to realign our thoughts, our actions, our hopes, our dreams, our goals with His. We're reminded here that care for the needy is part of God's heart, and that should be part of our heart as well. And lastly, remember that we live between two worlds. We have promises from God. We have blessings. We have hope and joy and strength. We also have suffering and sorrow and sadness. What is it that is at the center of giving us the ability to have hope and strength to carry on in the midst of our struggles? It's the work of Jesus Christ. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ, His perfect life, His sacrificial death, His glorious resurrection from the dead, His promise to never leave us or forsake us, that He goes to prepare a place for us, that where He goes, we shall go also. His promise that in this world we will face tribulation, but what else did He say? Take courage because I have overcome the world. We have these promises of God that are given to us 
And we have a physical reminder of his love and his goodness. Something better than the best courtroom drama. It's the Lord's Supper. It's what we're about to celebrate together. Physically, we can see and smell and taste this bread and wine. And it's a reminder of what Jesus Christ really did for us. It's not a story. It's not a wives' tale. He lived in time and space to rescue us from our sins. Think about it. When you go to someone's office, you go to their home, you see pictures, right? Pictures of them, pictures of their family. Usually those pictures aren't there because people forget what their family look like. Um, They're there because they remind us, pictures of Thanksgiving and Christmas and graduation, they remind us of the ties that bind us together. The ties of love. The Lord's Supper is a moving picture for us of the everlasting love of God and the lengths to which he went to, say, to, he went to, to save us and deliver us. That the ties that bind us together are his body and his blood. Not only that he is our savior, but that we are a family. Never forget that God has a heart for the needy. And it shouldn't be, it shouldn't be hard for you to, for, to remember because God has a heart for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Help us, Lord. Our minds and our lives are so shaped by what we want in our own ways. and Give us an increasing heart and joy to move toward people that need help. People here in this congregation, people in our community, people in our neighborhoods. We need your grace to do it. We ask that you would work and shape us into the image of Jesus Christ. Pray in his name. Amen.